this continuous unbroken line of people who believed what Jesus and apostles taught and who uh, are our forefathers. And I mentioned this morning that I am so grateful to the Lord for those people who were in my, I don't even know those people. I mean, I haven't met them. They've been gone. I'm going to meet them in heaven. Believe me, I want to spend lots of time when I get there just, just, just getting to personally interface with those people who, who did so much to bring what I have and such a free thing to me and to us. So I've been talking about them, and of course my whole really main objective here has been to show this unbroken line, where we were at what places and what centuries, and that, that we've been here, just establish the reality with documentation that we really have been here, and it's not a pipe dream or an empty statement to say that we have this unbroken line. <clears throat> I really do not enjoy talking much about the Catholic Church, I have to tell you that. I think it's virtually impossible to get across this message of our people and what a price they paid without understanding why they paid it, who was against them. I think you have to look at this drift away. And the people who drifted away still call themselves Christians too. They think they're the real Christians and we're not. We're the splitters. We left them, but that's the very reverse. But it's necessary to talk about uh, this entity, this big entity that came to be known as the Catholic Church, and particularly the Roman uh, Western Catholic Church. So we've been doing that, and as you heard this morning in the end of the message, or close to the end of the message, they were extremely wicked. I mean, it, I'm not saying everybody in there was wicked, but I will tell you that from the leadership standpoint, and so many down the uh, the way, especially in this leadership, these uh, priests and bishops and archbishops and cardinals and pope, uh, just with every century became more wicked and dictatorial and implemented all these very ugly, macabre ways of persecuting people and killing off people who, who didn't line up with them and stacking the deck against poor innocent people. It's, uh, it's a sad, sad story. But you know, there's a God in heaven who can intervene, and he did that in a most remarkable way. Uh, sort of broke the back of this strong entity that had the control over people's lives in Europe as a whole, and seemed like nobody could stand up against her. But God allowed a person to come on the scene uh, who died in 632. That man's name was Muhammad. Uh, most of us these days have heard a whole lot about the Islam and the, the Muslims. And if you keep up with what's going on in as many places in the world, especially in the East and Mideast, you've got to know there are millions and millions of people who are now embracing Islam. And in fact, in these states, uh, probably one of the most effective prison ministries in the United States today is the Ministry of Islam and they're converting people to Islam uh, in the prison system. I need to tell you a little about Muhammad, uh, and not a whole lot. I'm going to really race through here because I just have such limited time. Uh, Muhammad was the founder of this uh, religion called Islam, and I'm going to follow these notes but go through and not say everything the notes say. Uh, he was born in Mecca. There are a number of maps coming up, small maps, and you'll see, and I won't try to point to each one. 
But he was born in Mecca. Uh, he, he was an epileptic. He had seizures. And this became a cover for him to uh, claim that he was getting these messages from God, that the Spirit of God sort of fell upon him and he went into these meetings with God, and that caused him to convulse and bite his tongue and do the things that epileptics do when they're under seizure. He did those things, and he would say when he came out of those that he got a message from God. He began to write those messages down that he claimed he got from God, including his conversion. And he said God told him in this first of these meetings, uh, which he became a the founder of Islam, he said, this is how it happened. This is what God told me to form this new religion. And just so you remember this, Islam means submission, submission. And the idea became conversion by the sword. You either, you either submit or we kill you. That sounds kind of eerily familiar, doesn't it? That's what those Catholics were saying over there too about that same time and later. We're going to kill you. So one of the reasons today Muslims bristle somewhat at us Christians condemning their ways is because they're aware of these Catholics who are killing them and others around this world. They say, you're a hypocrite. You're condemning us for the same thing that you have been doing all these centuries as well. Muhammad, um, he had four contradictory accounts of his conversion. But these uh, accounts of conversion and other things he supposedly got from the God of heaven, uh, went into a book. He wrote them, and they were eventually combined into a book called the Koran. Koran. And, and that book there is, is a very contradictory book. I have a copy. I've not read all of it, but I've read lots of it. And will tell you that it's hard to imagine how any kind of person who believes in consistency could think this is of God, because it's not consistent with itself at all, which as you know, consistency with itself is one of the major tests for a book to make it into the Bible, so the whole Bible is consistent. And he was, he was in a trade group. His father was a trader, and Muhammad went all over that part of the Persian uh, desert area and down through Syria and, and he was just in a caravan, a trade caravan, spices and things like that were being traded, other goods. And he was a part of that. So he became exposed to broad range of ideas. He became very, very aware of Christianity, how it worked and what it's supposed to do, uh, even of some of the true aspects of Christianity. Because remember, his people call the Christians Baptists. So he was aware of the drift as well as he was aware of true Christianity and what it was. But he also became quite an expert in Judaism. He knew about the Old Testament. In fact, uh, he claimed much of the Old Testament into the Koran. If you read the Koran, you'll just see a lot of this just stuff he borrowed and brought over into the Koran. Also, he brought in his um, Arabic pagan practices. They worship the moon. If you know the symbol of, of Islam, it's a crescent moon. Well, that's right out of pagan Arabic thinking. So he brought many aspects of pagan Arabic thinking into his Koran, and he brought a few aspects of Christianity into his Koran. So when you look at it, it's a hodgepodge, but it's a made-up book like that. Uh, this guy wanted sons. In those days, for many hundreds of years through there, it was extremely important to people 
that they carry on their lineage. And your lineage went through the oldest son and the other sons and through that. So he wanted sons. He, he was, a, as I said, a, a traitor. And he married a rich lady who was 15 years older than him and started having kids. Uh, he and this lady named Kadijah, uh, she gave Muhammad three sons and four daughters, daughters, but all of the sons died, every one of them. So after Kadijah died, uh, he had another 12 or so years before he ended up dying. So he had another 12 wives, and he, had to have all, he tried to have all the kids he had. He had one boy out of all that, and he died too. So he didn't end up with any sons. But he, he started talking at, uh, at Medina about his, um, his, his visions, you know, that he was going to be a boss, he was going to rule his religion, his starting new religion was going to rule the world, and he was going to rule it by force. And the people there stood up against him. Well, what he did, he got him a little army together and trained them, and he just killed all those people. They ran him away for first in, in, in a flight uh, called a Habjib, I think. Anyway, he ran him off, and then after a while, he, he came back with more forces and just killed off. So he began by, uh, by killing off people. You convert to who I am, and you believe what I'm doing, or I will kill you, and that was not an empty threat. Well, he died unexpectedly in 632. However, his followers, they bought into the dream. So they continued to kill people. They continued to go wherever they could. Particularly, they went from the Arabic area over there to eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, the Persian Gulf, Syria, Persia, those areas. They went southward around the Mediterranean through Egypt and across North Africa, conquering as they went. In fact, they were so successful, the next 100 years, 632 to 732, is their age of conquest when they had pretty well established themselves as the chief power in that part of the world. And you can be assured that the Pope at Rome is not unaware of what's going on. He's got intelligence sources telling him what's happening, and he realizes that now he's surrounded, pretty close to being surrounded by Islam. Already to the east, now it's to the south, and they're making inroads to the north. And some of those from the south have crossed the Straits of Gibraltar from Morocco and over into Spain, and they're going to conquer them from Spain forward. He realized they're encircling us, so they, he, he sent troops. The, the uh, Pope sent troops to, to uh, stop the encroachment of Islam and that cost, of course, money. Uh, Islam, you see some of the beliefs that they have in there because of the length of time. I'm going to let you read that and not go through them. But just remember, they think that Jesus was a prophet. They don't, they'll tell you right off, we do not deny Jesus Christ. We, he's one of the prophets. In fact, he's one of the greater prophets along with Abraham and Muhammad. And they will tell you that the latest and greatest prophet is Muhammad. And if you don't agree to that, then you're worthy of death. So you have to buy into their system, or they will, if they get an opportunity, kill you. And I could talk from here till tomorrow about Islam and what's happening in many places in the world. I recommend a book, every issue of my connected newsletter. It's out four times a year. By the way, any of you who don't get it and would like to get it, I'd be happy to, to add your email. 
address and you go on my distribution list. But in there, I review a book, and I reviewed a book recently called Christianophobia, and it deals with about 16, 17 countries, today countries, Egypt and some of these countries, and uh, even, even Cuba, and their attitude toward Christianity. And their attitude toward Christianity is destroy them. I mean, they still want to do that, even though they're not able to openly do it like they once did. They, so I will tell you that Islam believes in a works salvation. They think you go to not our heaven, you go to a place of, of you know, paradise. It's kind of the Islamic heaven. If you're good enough and one of the elect, and they also believe in election, if you're one of the elect, you'll cross the bridge at the end of your life in the spiritual sort. If you cross the bridge and don't fall off, if you're one of the elect, you'll cross the bridge. If you're not one of the elect, you'll fall off into hell and you'll be there forever. But if you're one of the elect, you get on the other side, and on the other side, you can have all the wine and virgins you want for the rest of eternity. So this is a big deal for Muslims looking forward to what their idea of heaven is. And they think you have to be a good Islamic person if you have any chance of making it over there. And they also believe that it is okay to kill. It's especially okay to kill that if you uh, convert a, or can't convert an infidel, and that's what they call the rest of us, infidels, that's their formal terminology for us. If you, can, if you kill an infidel, uh, then, then you're excused. You're, that's not going to count against you in any bad way. They were a big threat. A really, really big threat. As I said, they had circled around the the uh, Catholic areas, and it became obvious to the Pope that they're going to succeed and perhaps uh, upset the whole apple cart. So there was the the war that I talked about, where Charles Martel met them in France and stopped the advancement of Islam and sort of cooled things down for a while. But it put the cap the the Catholic state, the papacy, in a really compromising position. Uh, there was opposition to the papacy, the Pope and the, the Roman church all along. Not everybody you remember joined in. A lot of them didn't. Some openly stood up. And, and it weren't all believers. It weren't all Bible people. Just from the first place, um, from the time Constantine declared Christianity to be the, the religion of, of the Roman Empire, uh, virtually all of the secular powers took a real note of that. They thought, hey, hey, this is not so good that we're going to have this thing and it's going to be run by and controlled by the, the Caesar and the, under him the preachers, these pastors of this church in Rome. I mean, they could see that and they didn't like it. They were leery about it. Furthermore, uh, there was religious opposition, not just secular opposition, but religious opposition. Uh, many of the Christians and churches did not support the drift of the bigger and more influential churches into the state church idea, so they were obviously against what was going on, this drift in the wrong direction and this thing getting big. There was another factor going on in Europe at that time, and it got bigger the further they went, and that is this idea of nationalism. During this main period of time from all around 300 or shortly after 300, 400, especially by 500 uh, the, the feudal system had, had taken control of the whole of Europe. You had, had uh, these lords and their, their little fiefdoms or kingdoms, or they ruled, they had usually an army and, or at least a military force, and they had a castle and a moat, usually a place where they could protect themselves from attacks. And So 
this is how Europe was made up. There was no England per se. There's the ground, but it hadn't developed into a, a really serious nation like we think of England and France and Spain and, and uh, uh, Austria and Germany, all these places today. But that idea was beginning to take hold. There were some people thinking along those lines. So nationalism was coming along. Furthermore, there were corruptions. I've talked about how how the Pope was just raping Europe, and the people in Europe were being just drained and kept poor, and and not just the pe the peasants who didn't have much in the first place, but particularly these knights and these other people who lived around there. They were having to pay these huge taxes, and even the people in the church, you know, the Catholic Church, they had all these. Um, bishoprics they had to pay for, and the Pope got the first year, and he changed over to another, and he had to pay that next year to the... I mean, the Pope and the church, which he headed, was getting rich, literally rich, and so was the Pope himself living. And in the process of this, um, there was immorality that I'm just uh, embarrassed to even talk about up here, but I have to mention at least something about it. Um, the immorality was that particularly the legates, you know, those headhunters went out searching for Christians. Plus, in a bishopric where you have the church, and you have a church, usually a little church, on every lord's property. He owns a thousand acres and he's got a church and all that protection I was talking about. Well, the Pope has guys, he's taxing them, taxing them on buildings they might have and He's getting all kinds of income. When they die, one of them dies, especially a church leader. He has to send all of his goods go to the church. So no inheritance for the family or any of that. And then these guys were not only greedy and awful in how they treated people, they were immoral. Uh, these church leaders, from the popes to the bishops and others in that operation they thought they could have sex with anybody anytime they wanted to and they had the power if you stood against it you'd get in big trouble with them and so I mean if they came along and they wanted a wife and they just took her and and, 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 and so kids little, you know girls it was just open season it was the most one of the most immoral times in any operation particularly under the name of God that you could ever imagine. This was going on, and people were resenting that. More and more the common people were resenting the strength and the immorality and the bulliness and all the overhanded uh, positions, uh, underhanded positions of these folks. And then the Islamic thing takes off. 632. Remember, you could really say that a pope, uh, that, that Catholic Catholicism got grown in 600, about 600. That's when you had a king, I mean a pope, being able to tell a king what to do and not to do, and to make a king and dethrone a king. So the, the church was, was fully grown, and it was a big bully grown, and with no morals and no character at all. And people were resenting that, so the the prestige of the papacy was losing ground. A lot of resentment. We need to do something about this. 
But here comes Islam and it takes off like a wildfire and it becomes a threat to the Catholics and of all things, the Muslims take Jerusalem, Israel. One of the desires of most of those so-called Christians, even in the, you know, the drifting church or the corrupt church, they wanted to make a trip to Israel. They wanted to see the Holy Land and go to the place where Jesus was born and where Helena had found, the, she thought, his birthplace and all that stuff in his crucifixion place. So they wanted to go... And and now the, the Islamic people, those uh, Muslims, conquer a bunch of that territory, including Jerusalem and that area surrounding Jerusalem. The popes are pretty smart guys, some of them were, and they figured it out. We got a whole bunch of people now who resent the Muslims. They're a threat to us. Now they've taken over our holy shrine and bunch of our relics, we need to do something about it. Things are right for a campaign to eradicate Jerusalem of the Muslims, to take it back. This Christian holy site, we're going to take it back. How are we going to do that? We have to have an army because those, those Muslims down there, they have an army and they're well greased. So we're going to have to get together an army so they begin to preach the Crusades, like Urban. He's one of those popes. He starts preaching a crusade. He starts tackling and telling all these uh, Europeans, these Germans and Frenchmen especially, hey, this is what's going on down there in the Holy Land. We got to go do something about it. So you come and join the campaign. You become a soldier of the cross. Uh -huh. A soldier of the cross. Doesn't that sound high and lofty? We're going to have a holy war against these Islamic people who've taken our holy land. So he's able to raise a crusade together, and it's a crusade that is basically to free Jerusalem and the holy land. That's at least what the Pope preached the crusade to be. So in the first crusade's case, as you can see in your notes, with no training, 70 or 67,000 men, women, and children. Now, this is some kind of army. No training. Men, women, and children, families, they're going to take off on a march to Jerusalem. Out of 67,000, 7,000 of them survived. Really, most of them didn't get killed by any Muslims. They just died on the way. They just couldn't take the trip. Went totally unprepared, and it's a long way, and they had to walk. They didn't have any buses or planes or any kind of transportation. So it was just a futile exam. It was an embarrassment. I mean, it was a total embarrassment. By 1099, the Crusaders had made it to Jerusalem, and the second wave of these, this first crusade, 50,000 European soldiers realized these civilians can't fight. They don't have any war training, so they got together, 50,000 of them, they made it all the way to Jerusalem, and they freed Jerusalem of the Muslim occupation. Well, a little later, an incident happened in Edessa, where a lot of the scriptures were held. Edessa is a place over in there. You'll see it on the map up there. Uh, there was a massacre. The Muslims went in, and they massacred the people of Edessa, just killed them, polished them off. Well, word got of that, and then there's another hatred and revenge in Europe. 
we are not going to take that. These Muslims are not going to do that to us and take our Holy Land. So a second crusade come into the picture to go back and get these Turks out of the way. The Turks had done this one. They had gone in and done that. So this Pope Eugenius III commissioned a guy, a fellow named Bernard of Clairvaux. He was a monk to preach a crusade. So, so uh, Bernard, he got 70,000 70, uh, soldiers, mostly out of France and Germany, and he took off to retake Odessa. And the two groups that he got, people out of Germany, couldn't get along with the people out of France. They began to bicker among themselves, so the whole thing died on the vine. These guys just bickering, fighting among themselves. Well, that necessitated the problem uh, worse, or exaggerated the problem. And so a third crusade came on the scene in 1190 to 1193 in that period of time there. Three years. This crusade is probably the most famous one because somebody made a movie out of it. And you've probably seen Richard the Lionhearted. And how they went over there, he did, with a bunch of troops. And he got some English troops this time. And he went and had a showdown with the with a Muslim who was out of Egypt, Saladin, and they couldn't whip each other, so they made a truce and agreed that the Muslims could keep Jerusalem, but they would have to let pilgrims come in, but they would charge a tax. They would be allowed to charge them a fee for coming into the Holy Land. So you can see this really didn't solve much. So that necessitated a fourth crusade, 1200-1204, and Pope Innocent III decided to revive the Crusades uh, because the Eastern Catholic churches down there around Constantinople and, and that area were getting too familiar with the Turks and not got making friendships. And he thought they're going to kind of blend together and I'm going to lose my power down here. So we have to do something about that. So in this fourth crusade, he sent a bunch of people down there and raised up enough to go. And these merchants transported them. He got the Venetian merchants, the Italian Venetian merchants who had ships to transport these uh, crusaders to one of these towns in that area called Zara. And these crusaders just ravished the town. They just they didn't go back to the Holy Land, get it. They ravished the town of Zara. And then they went from there to Constantinople and, and they just looted the city of Constantinople. Their so-called Catholic brothers and sisters down there, they tore it all up and just wrecked, just wrecked the thing. Well, that left another void. And so this boy in Germany, whose name was Stephen, claimed, he was just a 10-year-old, I think, boy, about the size of Ben or John. He claimed that God gave him a vision and that he was sent from God to raise up kids and go down and free the Holy Land and lead a crusade. This is called the Children's Crusade. It started in 1212. And this boy, uh, actually he was a Frenchman, and he got Germans to jump, jump with him. He claimed this vision, and so Catholic children from all over the continent joined, but many of these, most of them were from France, and most were from Germany. It ended in total ruin. There's a graphic up here. Uh, they went down. They were tricked to get on a ship, bunches of them, they were, got on the ship, and they were sold in North Africa and other places as slaves, these little kids. And then some others made it on down a little way and just sort of vanished into the woodwork, just never got anywhere. So about 30,000 of these little German boys and a few girls, mostly German boys, 
they went on this crusade and they all perished. There are some results to these crusades, as miserable and gruesome as they may seem, it, it gave the popes some clout. Here's this big threat. Who's getting something, doing something about it? These, these popes. They're raising crusades. Somebody to go down there and fight. So all of a sudden, their lagging credibility and prestige is lifted a bit. But still, it's on the decline. And the crusades help accelerate their decline in the long haul. One of the reasons why is there was lots of learning in the East. Down at Constantinople, they had more manuscripts, Greek manuscripts and other manuscripts of scriptures than they had at Rome, Italy. They were more learned. They were more advanced in mathematics and other areas of education. So more learned people. When the crusaders went down there and almost all of them went through Constantinople, they had to pass through on their way down there. When they went through, they became acquainted with some of these documents and some of this learning. They met people who had education that they didn't have because you remember that these bishops of Rome had deliberately tried to keep people in innocent in, in darkness. Now they're going away and they're waking up. Hey, we've been hell. There's some stuff been hidden from us. So they realize that what they've been taught is not the way it is. They've been taught all this tradition stuff. Now they get copies of the scripture and they see the scriptures contradict what they've been taught as tradition. So it is a very eye-opening time for these people who are going down there. And lots of them, as you see, went and a lot didn't come home, but many did. Also, this effort was, was weakening feudalism. That's where you have lords and, and then the serfs and the, you know, the people that are running the place. And then there's the nobodies, the people that are working the place. Well... Uh, feudalism meant that most of these people, particularly the peasants, uh, they grew up and they never probably made it from their home, their birthplace, as far as it is from this church to Shepherd Drive. They lived on that place where they were born. They did what the boss, the lords and his servants told them to do. They had no way to move up in their social class. You were born a peasant. You stayed a peasant. You couldn't go to school. You had no way to get out of that. No upward movement. When these crusades happened, a whole bunch of these uh, peasants and their lords joined the crusades, going to the Holy Land. Can you imagine somebody that spent his entire life within probably two or three mile radius or maybe five mile at the most? would jump at the opportunity to go away from home and see some new country and fight and conquer for God and be in the soldier of the cross uh, class and do it. Boy, I mean, they're roping, romping and raring to join the crusades. It's a way to escape. And it's even a better way to escape when you read the notes for these details. When you see that if you join the crusade, we will make it worth your while to do it. These popes are saying, you join the crusades, we will guarantee you eternal life. You'll be going to heaven for sure, regardless of what you do. We will also give you some indulgences. That is, we will pardon your sins before you even leave for the trip. 
If you go down there and you have sex with 10 women or with whatever you want to do, kill somebody, do all that stuff, we're giving you a pass ahead. You go down there and you got it. Go have fun. Go have a good time. Pretty appealing. One of the popes even said, if you will go, we will guarantee your mother and daddy eternal life. Yeah, just give it because you go on the crusade. So they bought into this thing. And even the popes would tell them, some of these popes in these crusades would say to them, it's these Muslims, they're our enemies. They're heathens. Talk about the Muslims calling us infidels. Now here are these popes telling these soldiers, these going under the crusades banners, hey, these are nobodies. They're, they need to die. So it's okay. In fact, God will bless you if you will kill as many Muslims as you can. Just go down there and kill them. However you have to do it. Kill cold blood. Just do it. It's not too hard to see how you get 70,000 people to line up to go to the Holy Land. When they got all this liberty and where they get into this new place to go and all that stuff. Well, while they're down there, though, uh, the Pope begins to lose his grip. Because for one thing, this nationalism is rising. You've got some guys that are now looking at ruling an area like France and England and these Spain. And it's no longer going to be just a bunch of lords with landowners here and everybody's sort of against himself. Now you're going to have somebody that's sort of over this territory. We're going to have a nation here. And so we're going to have to do lessen the power of these local guys and we're going to strengthen the power of this guy. That's growing Many of these who own these, these uh, areas, these uh, castles and all that property, lordships, uh, they go off on the Crusades. A lot of them got killed down there. They never came home. It enables this local guy now who's going to be a king to strengthen his hand so this nationalism just gets bigger, growing. A lot of the peasants, even if they didn't get killed, they didn't want to go back and live on the on the, uh, the Lord's property anymore. So they just vanished away. And towns began to spring up. Paris, one of the towns that began to take root and get bigger. London, the, these are probably the two biggest ones. But then you over in Germany have these towns that do the same. And you have the same thing in Madrid and Barcelona. I mean, these towns. So there's a whole dynamic happening. And as it happens, the Pope doesn't have the power that he had. Now suddenly he can't control everybody like he was controlling. He can't get all the money he has. So he lost his grip on Europe. So what does he do? He goes to war. The Crusades have pretty well come and gone. So he declares the Crusades not against the Muslims who've taken our wonderful Holy Land and our shrines. He declares a crusade against the Bosnian believers and against the Croatian believers and starts orchestrating these, these uh, he orchestrated a crusade against the Albigenses. Remember who they were, the Waldenses, this area of the Waldenses? Against them. Uh, he also has a crusade against Savoy. Um, I probably need to just give you a little detail about the one against Savoy. The Waldenses were flourishing in Savoy on the western flank of the Alps. You can see it on the map up there. Pope Innocent VIII issued a bull exterminating 
of extermination against them because they were converting people to the doctrine, and I'm quoting, that their principal means of seduction was their great appearance of sanctity. Here's these holy people who have the appearance of sanctity. Why do they appear sancti sanctified? They are sanctified. They are holy people. They're living sanctified, set-apart lives. They're godly people. And I want to add, I don't think it's in your notes, but as you look at the map here and you see that Cotian Alp area, North Italy, Southern France, and over here on the top, you got Dauphiny over here, you have Provence down here, and Savoy. All of this area is rich, fertile ground. These Christians, these people just like us at Northwest Baptist Church, they've gone in there and settled in there, and they have freedom. It's the first major place on this earth that ever had a major section where we have freedom of speech. We have freedoms kind of like we enjoy you. The first place. When the Pope saw that they were flourishing and doing so well, he hated it. So he organized this crusade to go up there. He sent Robert de Montfort, I think was the general's name, a French guy. And he went up there and he absolutely crushed them. Crushed freedom. Broke them. Broke them down. I'll talk about this massacre of Valois. The Crusaders moved against a strong community in, of the Waldenses in the town of Briacon. When the believers retreated to a hard, large mountain cave, the Catholic forces had located them, went to the open cave and sealed it off the entrance with wood and set it on fire. And more than 3,000 Waldenses, the whole population of Valois, were massacred including 400 little children who were smothered by these Catholic raiders in their mother's arms or in their cradles. 400 little babies just smothered them to death. I tell you, the Pope would do anything to maintain their grip and their power. And they were doing this. So they went into this conquest area. And I mentioned earlier today about those who came over here. I mean to the New World, like um, Magellan. Or, well, not so much Magellan, but, but I'll say uh, even Columbus and Cortez and these guys who came with conquest to conquer and get the wealth and put under Catholicism all that they could. You can imagine that the resentment grows. And so there came a ripe community for what we would call a revolution or a reform. So there's two kinds of reformations, or three kinds. There's what's called classical uh, Reformation, and I'll just summarize to say that classical Reformation, the idea of that was, let's return Catholicism to what it was when Constantine ruled. Let's get the church, let's just move it back over, get rid of these corruptions and a lot of this stuff, just move it back. That's classical reform. Then there's radical reform. Radical reform, these reformers had the idea that the Catholic Church is dead and gone and it needs to be out of the way and we need to return to New Testament Christianity. There's information in your notes about some of these reformers like Juan uh, John Huss was one of them and he was one of the best ones I'd say of the bunch. And the Catholics tricked him into coming to a meeting to sit down and talk. They got him to where they wanted him and they said we can't, we can't meet with a, with a traitor and a guy doesn't believe in us so they just burned him at the stake. 
I mean, it's, say, well, it's, it's okay to welch on your promise of safe passage to somebody who's a heretic. So they just killed him. That's the kind of integrity or lack thereof that was going on at the time. John Wycliffe grew sort of out of this. But there was then another kind of uh, Reformation, another idea on Reformation. Uh, Erasmus was in this group. It's called Counter-Reformation. Counter-Reformation means that we need to clean up the Catholic Church from the inside. We don't want to go back to where we were in the days of, of uh, our, our Constantine. That's too far. That's too, too bad. We certainly don't want to say the Catholic Church is dead. We need to completely do away and just bury that thing. No, let's just clean it up on the inside. That's not how so many of these bad things going on. So it's counter-reformation. Catholicism needs to be cleaned from the inside out. That's lesson seven. I want to tell you, it's three o'clock. So it's time for you to go home. I would give you lesson seven, I mean lesson eight, in a summary as best I can. And I'll tell you what I'm going to talk about for those who you want to stay I'm going to just take a brisk walk through the Protestant Reformation. I'm going to do kind of like I was doing here. I'm not going to read it out of these notes up here and there. I'm just going to tell you the story. And I'm going to talk then about getting the Bible into the hands of the common man. I'm going to really put a little pressure and stance on that. And then I'm going to talk about the Anabaptist and who they were. And then talk about just the Baptist. And I think what we ought to do, stop here and you take just a little quick water break, maybe five or so minutes water break. If you can't stay and we'll need to go, you go, take a water break. Those you want to stay, I'll stay here and I'll go through this eighth session. So let's just take that time right now and we'll just consider it's going to be very short.